Good evening and welcome to E-Bible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Revelation. Tonight we'll be studying number 18 of Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to be reading from verse 6 of chapter 1, which says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's uh, take the first part of this verse. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. We saw in the previous verse that the Lord Jesus was the prince of the kings of the earth. And we spent a little time looking at that phrase, the kings of the earth. And we discovered that we are kings, the believers are kings, because we have been adopted into the family of God, and God is the great king. And so we have become, as it were, royalty. We are of royal blood now, or uh, at least of the blood of Christ that covers our sins and and has allowed this adoption to take place, where we can take the name of God the name of Christ and be a Christian. And we also saw where it says kings of the earth, that this was referring to the new earth that God will create when he has destroyed this present world. And then his people will be kings upon that new heaven and new earth, reigning forever with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is king of all kings. And he is king of all earthly kings of this present world. And he is king of all spiritual kings, his children, his elect, in the world to come. Well, let's look at a verse also in Revelations in chapter 5, a couple of verses, verses 9 and 10. And it says in verse 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Well, here we see that this wonderful gift, this wonderful blessing that's bestowed on us, to be called not only sons of God, but kings and priests, is given to all those that are redeemed from every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. The entire company of the elect, all whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they are the ones that become saved. They are given the gift of salvation, and in the process made unto God kings and priests. We are spiritually royalty, and we are of a royal priesthood. In a second, we'll look at a verse that that states that. But notice that it says, And we shall reign on the earth. And there God is letting us know where this reign will take place. Because it's a future reign. It's a reign that has not yet begun. It is the eternal reign of God's people when God brings in 
that eternal and, and glorious future that the Bible tells us so much about. That is when we will reign on the earth, not at this present time. The Bible speaks of other kings of the earth. As a matter of fact, in chapter 6, in verse 15, it mentions kings of the earth who hide themselves in dens and rocks of the mountains when the day of the Lord comes to pass. They're hiding out of fear uh, due to the judgment of God upon them. Those kings of the earth are not true believers. They are kings of this present earth. They are, in all probability, pointing to professed Christians who have their uh, inheritance only in this lifetime because they have never become saved. And so we have a far greater inheritance, a, a more wonderful hope and promise. It, it's not um, this world, but it is the world to come where forevermore we will be with the Lord. And and we make that statement and we say it quickly because we, we really can't fill it in all that much due to our lack of comprehension, our lack of fully understanding what that means. All we can do is read what the Bible says and and just shake our heads and wonder that these things are in store. They are the expectation of all of God's people to look to the future with just the the greatest hope of the the most glorious things that could ever be imagined will come to pass and will be right before our eyes uh, into eternity future. Well, now let's think about why God calls us priests. We've talked about how we're kings, but why are we made unto God kings and priests? Well, one reason is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, being a king, yes, is also a priest. It says in Psalm 110, and this is a Messianic psalm referring to the Messiah, who is Christ. It says in verse 4 of Psalm 110, Jehovah has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is referring to a character, an individual, who appears in the book of Genesis in the days of Abram for a short period of time. And Abram gives him tithes and offerings, and then he disappears. We find he's mentioned in this psalm, and then in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7, especially God goes into detail describing this mysterious person, Melchizedek. And he says in Hebrews 7, in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, that is, the name Melchizedek, this is what it means by interpretation, king of righteousness. 
And uh, that would relate to Christ being a king whose kingdom, he said, was not of this world. But then it goes on to say in in verse 2 of Hebrews 7, And after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. This is a description of Christ, and it is a description of God. It's only God that is without a father and without a mother. That is, God has never been conceived. He's He's never had someone to bring him into being as creatures are created and and then they have mothers and fathers. No, God is not like that. No one conceived God. No one was before him. So he is without father, without mother, without descent. There is none that predate him. There is no ancestor that comes before him. He is, the Bible says, from everlasting. And it's just really one of the most incredible truths that we could ever think of to imagine, and I mean to consider and to ponder, to meditate upon the fact that God has always been. That, if anything, demonstrates our inability and and our finiteness, it is that, that he is from everlasting. He is eternal God. He has no beginning point in time or in eternity past. That means we cannot go back a thousand years and say, well, God began here. No, no, we cannot go back to the beginning of the creation and say, well, this is God's beginning point. No, he did not come into being at that point either. Well, before creation then, that uh, he had a beginning at some point before he created the world. No, as a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that you can go back in your mind's eye. Isn't that an interesting way of that expression that, that someone has come up with? And it, it's pretty accurate. It's in our mind's eye that we see this. But picture it in your own mind and think of an eternal past and travel in the depths and and reaches of your own thoughts for as far and and for as long and for as deep as you can go. And it won't be very far. And all we can really picture before this world is a sort of darkness. We we can't picture anything. We have such limitations of mind because we're creatures, creatures of time, creatures of this creation. We know really nothing of what was before this creation, and we know only what God tells us of what comes after this creation. But there is an eternity that has always been, and we know this because God is eternal, and he dwells, he inhabits, he lives in the whole spectrum of that eternity. 
and and so as for as far back as you can travel or or any of us can travel the the most brilliant of men who would put their mind to it for as far back as you go god is there and has always been there and will go even further back you cannot find the very beginning of god and and that is uh, it, it is mind-boggling. It, it is incredible and amazing. That is an awesome God. And he is um, just a infinite being. He is the great I Am, eternal, almighty, majestic, and glorious God of the Bible. And, and so how can he explain this? He tells us directly that he is from everlasting to everlasting. But again, we're not equipped. We're not able. We have no ability to comprehend. And so he tells us of a Melchizedek, who really um, the theologians call um, Melchizedek's uh, in appearance, his appearance a theophany, which means God making an appearance. And, and that was eternal God. That was God who showed up in history in order to establish the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek so that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he would enter into the human race, could be a priest after the order of Melchizedek because Jesus was not a priest uh, after Levi. He was not born of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. And only um, priests could come of Levi. And so God, ever meticulous, ever careful to keep his own law, had to establish another law, a greater law, than the priesthood of Levi. And that was to establish the priesthood of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood, because this Melchizedek is actually the Lord Jesus Christ. And when did Christ offer up himself? When was he the lamb slain? When we have the answer to that question, we'll have the answer to when did Melchizedek accomplish his work as the eternal priest of God? And the answer is before the foundation of the world. And that's when Jesus offered up himself and performed the task of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so the priesthood of Melchizedek is a far greater and and more glorious priesthood than Levi, the Levitical priesthood, ever could be. And God proves this and makes a point of it by having Abraham offer ties to Melchizedek and then God points out that Levi was in the loins of his father when that happened and the less are the ones who give the offering to the greater so Melchizedek was the far greater priesthood and and this is the priesthood of Christ it says in Hebrews chapter 3 in verse 1 wherefore holy brethren partakers of the heavenly calling consider the apostle and high priest of our profession christ jesus 
who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. The Lord Jesus was appointed priest by eternal God, by the Father, and he was faithful in carrying out that task of his high priestly duties. Well, since Christ is a priest and was appointed a priesthood, the people of Christ, the body of believers, the elect chosen before the foundation of the world, we become a royal priesthood. Now, in order to be a part of this royal priesthood, we must have our sins paid for. It says in Psalm 132, and in verse 16, I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There is the priestly garb, that is the priestly attire that every spiritual priest is clothed with. If if you are a child of God, you are a king, God um, has granted us a, a golden crown, the Bible speaks of, to wear, and it, of course that's all spiritual, and he has clothed us with salvation for our priestly attire. These are our garments. You know, there were uh, priests when the temple was finished in Solomon's day. And we're, let's turn back there and we'll take a look at what they were wearing. Turn to Second Chronicles 5 and verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asap, of Heman, of Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. And here the covering, the clothing, is said to be white linen. And that is the righteousness of the saints. Revelation 19 tells us in verse 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. What do we find that the great multitude is clothed in? In Revelation chapter 7, it says in verse 9, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne. Remember, we read earlier in Revelation 5 about uh, those redeemed by the blood of Christ of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And it's said in verse 10, and has made us unto our God kings and priests. Well, here in Revelation 7, 9, we read again, a great multitude, no man could number of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. The white fine linen, white signifying purity and and perfection, absolute holiness because all sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the people of God have been made clean in the eyes of God and are now permitted to serve him in a royal priesthood. This is what God says in First Peter. And, and remember that historically God had set up in the temple service that the priests were to wash before they went about their priestly duties. Likewise, God washes the filth of sin away from his people before he has them carry out his priestly duties, whatever they may be, of carrying the gospel, of sharing truth, whatever the Lord would have his people to do, they do it. It says in First Peter 2 and verse 5, Ye also as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What, what spiritual sacrifices do we offer up? Well, yes, we involve ourselves with spiritual things, reading the Bible studying the scripture, prayer, and and we may give of our resources for the work and ministry of God and so on. But really, primarily, the chief thing that God is expecting from each one of his priests is the sacrifice of himself. That That's following in the steps of the great high priest as Christ offered up himself for the sins of his people for the sake of the elect we are to offer up ourselves for the very same purpose uh, during the day of salvation we would offer up ourselves in service to God to make sure the elect could hear the gospel and all could become saved. In these days after the tribulation and after the day of salvation, now we're in the night when no man can work it as far as evangelizing the world that people might hear and become saved because that that particular task is completed. But we still have a job to do. We have a task to perform. And it is to feed God's flock, to feed the sheep, the truth of the word of God. And so we continue to offer up spiritual sacrifices. As it says in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This duty has not come to an end. We are, we are not now to indulge the body, to give in to the flesh, to serve the lusts of our, our fleshly thoughts or, or any such thing. We are to continue. This is always the case for the true believer to offer up our body as part of the royal priesthood of God to take up our cross and to follow him and to mortify our members which are upon the earth 
and and so on. We are continuing to do the Father's will, whatever he would have us to do. And certainly it would be to keep our bodies under that we might complete this spiritual race of running the Christian life during these final furlongs that will lead unto that incorruptible crown of salvation that each king receives on that last day, the final day of the day of judgment. Well, let's go back to Revelation and into our verse in chapter 1, verse 6, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. And so the next phrase is unto God and his Father. It, it is God who has made us priests and kings, and we serve him. It is unto God. But notice it says, in his Father. You know, some theologians, they really try to um, work a little extra to show how, well, this is actually talking about God, even his Father. That is, it's referring to God the Father alone exclusively. And we don't have to uh, try and, and get around the, the statement. The, the words are exactly as we find them written here. The Greek uh, is translated properly and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Of course, why some theologians try to get around that statement is that it is saying that God has a father and and to some they're troubled by that i don't know why the bible states that the bible declares that it says in hebrews chapter 1 for instance in hebrews 1 in verse 8 but unto the son he saith thy throne o god is forever and ever here the Father is speaking to the Son, and he is saying in addressing him, Thy throne, that is, your, your kingdom, your reign, your dominion, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father calls the Son God, and, and, and of course Jesus is the Son, and the Bible is perfectly clear in just too many places for anyone to resist, although they try, but they cannot truly resist the scriptures. They they resist out of corrupt minds and out of a corrupt desire to have Christ less than God. But actually, the truth of the word of God cannot be resisted. It it plainly and absolutely and very exactly and perfectly declares that Christ is eternal God in the flesh, and he is the Son of God because he is the only begotten of the Father, the first begotten of the dead. And the Bible also teaches that God is the Father. Yes, God and his Father. That is an accurate statement. It is true of the person of God because God reveals himself 
as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. Now, continuing in verse 6, it goes on to say, let me read from the phrase we were looking at, unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion. See, it doesn't say to them, but to him, because God is one. 